Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. We are so glad that you're here the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving. This, uh, to me, is kind of the official start of the holiday season. And so uh, on your way out this morning, you're going to receive this card. Uh, you will be uh, eating dinner, lunch on Thursday, or spending time this weekend with people uh, that could use an invitation to a Christmas Eve service. So uh, use this card and build a bridge and invite them, bring them with you uh, to one of our four services. I think they will enjoy it. And uh, before we get into the message, if you want to start turning to Romans chapter 8, uh, we're going to cover that this morning. But I need to give you an update uh, for the community campaign. We've had three meetings in the last six weeks with our architects. Uh, we've met with uh, some equipment uh, companies uh, talking about the indoor design. And this afternoon, we are launching on Facebook, uh, Name That Park, contest. We need a name for this uh, building that we're building next uh, spring. So if you, I know you guys are more creative than I am. And so maybe you have a thought about the park. You can put it on your connection card if you want to, don't want to go on Facebook. But this afternoon we're launching this on Facebook. And so things are starting to take shape and move forward in that direction. Just wanted to give you an update on that. So Romans chapter 8, you need that in front of you. So grab a Bible or bring that up on your device. The Bible is the greatest book in the world, and Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, so goes some of the scholars, and I would uh, kind of agree to that. Uh, it is the Mount Everest. It has been called the Mount Everest of the Bible. And so you envision yourself uh, making your way up to the peak of a mountain uh, where you can see clearly and where everything starts to make sense. But you've got to make that climb. And so I realized if we're, we're just picking a chapter out of the Bible this morning, you need to understand the context or how Paul got to this uh, chapter that we're going look like, to look at. And so let me give you the Reader's Digest version of the first seven chapters of Romans. And here's, here, here it is. Uh, you're a sinner and you are separated from God. And because of Jesus, you have hope. So the first seven chapters, Paul talks about uh, our condition. And the, friends, the Bible doesn't need to tell you this. Uh, you have a conscience that tells you this. Something is wrong with the world. Something is wrong with you. And you can't seem to fix it. You can't seem to get it right. And so Paul talks about this in the first seven chapters uh, of, of Romans. And then he gets to chapter seven uh, and talks about his own personal struggles, even as a follower of Jesus. Uh, God created me. God loves me. God saved me in Jesus. But I can't seem to get this this uh, obedience thing right. I can't seem to get uh, my uh, Christian life right. I can't seem to do all the right things, and I'm struggling with this. And so to understand the gospel changes the perspective that I have on myself, on God, on the world around me, the future uh, that Jesus has for me. And so because of Jesus, we have a peace and a hope uh, that we cannot otherwise attain or accomplish on our own. And so uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I want to put that on the screen. And I want us all to read, read this verse uh, together. Here we go. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we got to stop at the word therefore. Uh, this is always a significant word because when you, know that, when you see the word therefore, you got to find out what the word is there for. Okay, so the word is there because of chapter 7. Even though Jesus saved us, we still struggle with sin. Right? Anybody here struggle with sin? Actually, none of you struggle at all. You do, you're quite well. Uh, you do quite well at sin. Okay, what we struggle with is, is not doing sin. What we struggle with is trying, is trying to get it 
Right, okay, so uh, we, we're coming out of chapter 7 where we have this, this struggle with sin and what do we do with this? And Paul was a Jesus follower, one of the best, and yet his struggle is our struggle. Uh, you d- what you want to do, uh, it just seems so hard to get it done, and what you don't want to do, that comes so easily, so naturally. And so Paul gets to this desperate, frustrating place. Uh, where he's at the end of chapter 7. He says this in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am. Any of you have ever uh, mountain climbed or been on the top of a a peak, 14,000, 15,000 feet, um, and you know how difficult it is to breathe? So this is like Paul gasping for air. Wretched man that I am. How am I going to get this right? How How can I do, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. He gets to the peak of this mountain, uh, Romans chapter 8, and realizes that his only hope, his only hope is Jesus. I have this struggle, so therefore, everyone say therefore, therefore, because of Jesus, here's the first point, there is therefore no condemnation. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Condemnation is a legal term. It means that there has been a charge leveled against you. You owe a debt. It is not good. It does not feel good. Condemnation never, it feels like shame and unworthiness and rejection. Condemnation is a thing uh, that you place on yourself because, you, because of the struggle of chapter 7. You just can't seem to get it right. Condemnation puts you in a debt position. But friends, this is the gospel, Romans 8. Because you're in Christ, that debt no longer exists. That debt has been paid. In other words, God does not, cannot, he cannot hold me accountable for a debt that no longer exists. That it, or a debt that Jesus has already paid for me. Now, friends, this is very important for us to understand. Even as Jesus followers, there is no condemnation as a Jesus follower. Here's the deal. God is holy, and so he cannot ignore sin. Sin has to be paid. It would be contrary to his character to just say to us, and you, you've wondered this, you know, why doesn't just God forgive us? If God loves us, why doesn't he just say, forget it, we're fine? Because God is holy, and holiness cannot, uh, cannot tolerate and it cannot ignore unholiness. That's one side of God's character. The second side of God's, God's character is love. He doesn't do love. He is love. That is his character. And so it kind of puts God in this dilemma. What does he do about the sin that he cannot ignore, but the sinner that he loves? Now, earlier in this book, um, he talks about God being both just toward the sin uh, and sinner and justifier of the sinner. Now, what what does that mean? Well, that's talking about the two sides of God's character. On one side, it would be unjust for God to ignore the sin debt. That's the holiness of God. But it is the love of God who puts that debt on Jesus so that he can be just with the sin and justify the sinner. That's you. Jesus took on the justice of God so that you could be justified before God. Now, again, this is so important for us to understand as believers because let's be honest. There are times in our lives where, you know, we know God loves us, but he's not very happy with us. Right? The Bible tells us that God accepts us, but, you know, he's somewhat disappointed. Friends, that is not the gospel. That can't possibly be true. Because in Jesus, there is no, there is no, there is no, no 
condemnation. On the count of three, say no condemnation. One, two, three. No condemnation. Listen, the gospel is not dependent on you getting it right. The gospel is all about Jesus getting it right for you. Uh, uh, Raken Wilborn says it this way, God doesn't love you to the degree you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And if you are a believer in Christ, you are 100% in Christ. And so there is no condemnation. You and I have these, these two problems when it comes to following Jesus and understanding the gospel in our lives. The performance trap and the pretense trap. The performance trap is, is, says that I've got to maintain a certain level of goodness for God to love me and accept me. I've got to be good enough. I've got to do enough. I've got to be enough. And if something bad happens to me, it's because God is paying me back for bad performance. And if the performance trap doesn't get you, the pretense trap will. And what is that? Well, it's simply, I can't get it right, so I'll just pretend. I'll just fake it. And I, I can't measure up, but I can't let you know that. So I'll just pretend that I've got it all together and we'll put on this facade. I, I, I think we call that hypocrisy. And it's simply because we don't understand, well, Paul said it, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Jesus will deliver you. Because of Jesus, there is no condemnation. Here's the second thing he offers. There's no obligation. Paul goes on in, chapter, in verse 12. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the, the New International Version, if you have that in front of you, it says that we have, we have an obligation, but not to the flesh. The flesh is the law. The flesh is self-effort. The flesh is obedience. The flesh is religion. And then he offers this obligation to the Spirit. It's the correlation between freedom and death. It's the, the choice is which are we going to give our lives to? Which are we going to be obligated to? Our own self-effort or to the effort that Jesus gave us and the spirit that indwells within us? When it comes to sin, friends, to the law, because we can never keep the law or get it right, uh, we defeat ourselves. We think we've got to maintain this certain level of obedience or goodness for God to accept us. And so we, get, we just get trapped in this, uh, this obligation of trying to get it right. And we never get it right. I, I've raised two children. Um, it's part of the, the, the job of the parent to teach them, and I've taught them a lot of things. I've taught them to walk. I taught them to talk. I taught them to eat properly. I taught them to put, the, put away their toys. I didn't teach either of my children to sin. But they are really good at it. Um, they must have picked it up from their mother. I can't, I can't um, I don't know how else that would have happened. Um, it just seems so natural. That's why we call it a sin nature, right? Because it's just, it's just so natural. The law, uh, the guidelines, the rules to curb your behavior never works. And so Jesus offers us his spirit. The word spirit is the same word for wind. You know, as Paul is making his way to Romans 8 and he's, he's, he's gasping for air, it is the wind, it is the air, it is the breath of God that gives us life and freedom. It empowers us to overcome the addiction of sin. Friends, sin is an addiction and it needs to be treated as such. 
You want to know why sin is addiction? Let me just ask you, how many of you did something wrong this year? Any wrongdoers this year? How many of you did something wrong last week? Yesterday? On the way to church? <laughs> uh, when you walked into church? Who, who knows? Uh, just stop it. Stop it, I say. People who don't understand recovery and addiction will say that. Why don't they just stop? Well, friends, they can't stop. That's, what, that's why they call it an addiction. Like an al- alcoholic who can't stop drinking. You, you can't stop. You can't stop gossiping. You can't stop losing your temper. You can't stop looking at porn or uh, being uh, unforgiving or uh, whatever it is, friends. Sin is an addiction. That's why, that's why willpower never works. We, we've all said to ourselves, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'm not, not doing it. I'm, I'm going to stop. And, and, we nev- and we never stop. Why is that? Because, friends, you're always focused on stopping it. Now, understand what I'm saying here. You, ca- you cannot defeat an addiction by stopping an addiction. You cannot defeat a habit by stopping a habit. A habit needs to be replaced. An addiction needs to be replaced. And Paul is saying to us in Romans 8, saying yes to the Spirit, being obligated to the Spirit, is the only way that you're going to stop the obligation to the flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we want to think about, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm not. What, are you, what are you going to do? I don't want to be obligated to the sin. Well, what are you obligated to? If, if, this, if this habit's going to go away, what's going to replace it? And Paul is saying, there is an obligation to the Spirit that will set you free. This is the difference between religion and relationship. Religion says stop. But married couples, I want to ask you a question. How many of you are the same person today that you were before you got married? Has your, has your spouse changed your life? Are you a different person today because of, because of the spouse that you were married to? Now, I'm not saying that it was better, but you're just different, right? Your spouse changes you. Parents, are you the same individual you were before you had kids? Absolutely not. Friends, it's relationships that change who we are. We are not the same because of the people in our lives. How much more, how much more Uh, Does our relationship with Jesus change who we are? Changes our passions? Changes our obligations? When you're pursuing that relationship, when you're wrapped up in that relationship, when that relationship is the most important relationship in your life. This is the point that Paul is making. In chapter 7, he was so exhausted from trying to get it right because he was focused on trying to get it right. And now he's telling us in Romans 8, it's the relationship that changes us. It's the Spirit of God. God is not after your obedience. He's after your relationship. Because he realizes that sin can only be defeated when it is replaced by the Spirit of God dwelling in you. The only way you can gain victory over what is defeating you is by pursuing what gives you victory. And that is a relationship The purpose of the Spirit, this is important for you, the purpose of the Spirit is not to curb your behavior. It is to transform your heart. So it is not about obedience or obligation. It is about obsession with the Jesus that saved you and the Jesus that empowers you. It is the wind that gives you life. There is no condemnation. There is no 
obligation. He goes on in verse 14. He says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we call Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Virtually every language has a word that describes this relationship. Daddy, dada, papa, baba, papa. In Aramaic, it's Abba. Everyone say Abba. The intimate relationship between a child and his father, a father who loves you. And notice what he says in this passage. He uses the word slave and fear. Slave and fear. The purpose of the father is to protect you and to provide for you, to love you, to to bless you, to be pleased with you, to be delighted in you, to want the best for you. And everything that belongs to him belongs to you. Now, here's the bottom line, friends. We have no obligation to the sinful nature. We are not slaves who need to be afraid. We are sons and daughters who stand secure in the abundance and the provision and the purpose of our Father. There is no obligation to the sinful nature. Number three, there is no consternation. Consternation. When was the last time you used consternation in a sentence? Okay, so here it, here's, here's what it means. Anxiety, uh, dismay. Uh, typically, it's something that is unforeseen or unexpected circumstances that throw you in frustration or confusion or fear or worry. Paul says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering is a very uh, consternating issue in our lives, even as believers. Suffering is the number one uh, reason why people do not believe in Jesus. And it is the number one reason why people stop believing in Jesus. What do we do with the suffering in our lives? One of, uh, if not the greatest fallacy of following Jesus is that if you do it right, uh, you will kind of get this pass on things going wrong in your life. Forgetting the fact that you never get it right. (laughs) So why would you think that you deserve an exemption for things going wrong. I mean, really, honest, read your Bible. Uh, those who were pretty good at getting it right actually suffered the most. So what are we to make of this? In this section, Paul makes clear that suffering is weaved uh, throughout the fabric of the universe and throughout the lives of every human being, Christian or not. Uh, Even the earth groans from the brokenness of sin. And if the earth groans, how much more do we? So first of all, suffering is unavoidable. All of us suffer. And secondly, suffering is many times unexplainable. We don't know why. Most of us want to know what we did wrong. And sometimes we didn't do anything wrong. We think God is punishing us because bad things are happening. And yet this suffering that Paul is talking about in this chapter uh, doesn't appear to be in reference to anything uh, that we did wrong. He's just acknowledging the fruit of a broken world. We suffer. The world suffers because of sin. And he concludes with a very familiar verse to many of us, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, what's missing in this verse, and many of you have memorized this verse or can call this verse back to memory when things go wrong, what's missing in this verse is the timeline or the time frame. Do we believe that God can work all things together for good? Most of us say yes. But the question is, when is he going to do that? 
When's he going to do that? God uses all kinds of circumstances in our lives to bring about a good purpose. Sometimes a car accident will awaken an alcoholic to get recovery, to pursue recovery. Sometimes a nasty breakup leads you to a better relationship. And it's, it's only in hindsight that we can see that silver lining behind the storm cloud, but sometimes there's not enough hindsight. Sometimes there's not enough time between the circumstance and our understanding. Paul uses in this, in this uh, verse, verse 18, the phrase will be. This is future tense, friends. Will be speaks to the future, even beyond this life. Sometimes the good worked out in heaven is, is worked out in heaven, not on earth. And you never get to see it this side of life. You see the problem, again, many, of, many of us have memorized Romans 8.28, I certainly have, but one of the problems with memorizing this verse is pulling it out of its context and making it mean something that it was not intended to mean. Paul completes his, his thought in verse 29. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what is God actually working out that he calls good? When you read or memorize Romans 8.28, uh, in its context, you begin to realize that the working out isn't about the circumstances of your life. It is about the character of your life. It's about, as, as you are pursuing the spirit of Jesus, uh, in the previous section Paul talks about, uh, as you are obligated to the spirit of God, God uses the circumstances in your life to conform you to the image of Jesus in those circumstances, whatever those circumstances might be. Friends, Romans 8.28 isn't about changing your circumstances. It's about changing you. And so it doesn't matter what happens to your life. It could be criticism. It could be cancer. It could be a, dad, a bad day at work. It could be losing your job. Whatever is happening in your life, when you are pursuing Jesus, God is using all of it. Nothing goes to waste. He is using all of it to conform you to the character of Jesus because only in Jesus do you have the life and the freedom that you desire. So you can see how Paul is working his way up to this point. There is no condemnation in Christ, friends. There is no matter how bad you are, God loves you. No matter how good you are, it doesn't matter. God, God is love. And so no matter how bad your life is, God has a purpose for you that is good and full of hope, but it has much more to do with who you are than what happens in your life. Now, here's, here's the problem. Here's the challenge for all of us. Uh, we just concluded our uh, chosen campaign last week. Uh, I had an incredible experience uh, watching these little children walk into a tent and look at your picture and point to your picture to take hold of your picture and to choose you to be a part of their family and watching those children come into that tent and watching their lives. And I, I got this question quite a bit. Uh, do you think they understood what was happening? And for the younger children, I don't, I don't think so. I, they were pretty overwhelmed at all that was happening. Now, many of their parents, I got to meet the mother of the child that chose me. She looked at my picture and she goes, that's you. Yep, that's me. <laughs> That mother knew exactly what was happening in that moment and how her child's life was going to be transformed dramatically. But those children, 
and to try to explain it to them at their age level, they're just, they're just not... Now, in time, they will begin to understand. But right now, it's, it's all an activity to them. They're not old enough to grasp the impact of that moment. And friends, what is true for them at that moment is true for you in life. Friends, we are dealing with an infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God who knows what he's doing and he sees things that you cannot see and is doing things that you, at this point in your life, have no, a finite human being cannot, just simply cannot comprehend all that God is doing in your life. And for him to try to explain it to us, I mean, it'd be like giving a million dollars to a three-year-old. What, what's the use? We just don't have the receptors to process that. That's why we call it faith. Do we believe that the God who created us loved us enough to die on the cross for us, to give us a life of hope? And if God came for us, and if he died for us, and if he rose from the dead for us, why do, why do I need to worry about this? Why do I need to live in anxiety? There's no reason to lose heart or to lose faith. Now, I, I know it's easier said than done. I get that. Uh, when you're in a season of pain and you can't see the good, you don't have enough hindsight to figure this out. I just want to encourage you this morning. I don't know where you are this morning, but wherever you are, withhold judgment. Would you? Would you just, would you just say to yourself, would you just believe enough that God loves you and has a purpose for your life? That whenever and wherever he works this out, he is going to work it out. That he's saying to you right now this morning, I got this. You don't need to worry about this. You're going to be fine. You're going to be better. I have a plan for you to conform you into the image of Jesus himself. And you don't need to be afraid. No condemnation, no obligation, no consternation. Finally, no separation. No separation. What then, verse 31, then shall we say in response to these things? What things? All of the things that Paul has said in this chapter, leading up to chapter 8, through chapter 8, he poses five questions. Uh, he goes on, if God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, we started with no condemnation. We are guilty before God, but in Christ we have been accepted by God. So if God doesn't condemn us, uh, who's powerful enough to defeat us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if Jesus uh, could have, he could have said no to the cross, but he didn't. He did not abandon us, even in the moment of his greatest trial. So why would you think he will abandon you now? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Friends, you have an enemy who stands before God accusing you of all the things you've ever done wrong. Making a case for why you're unworthy of the cross. And if he doesn't do that, you will. You will fall back into guilt and shame all the time. But Jesus has stepped in between the accuser and the just judge and says, I have done for them what they cannot do for themselves. I've paid the debt they cannot pay. And so, friends, the verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? Friends, it's an impossibility. God would have to deny his own character to rescind what he has already done for you in Jesus. There is no one, who, you are immune from prosecution. Verse 35, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? God is for you, he is with you, he is working in you, he approves of you, he delights in you, 
He sings over you. He loves you. He just, he just loves you. It's not what he does. It's, it's who he is. But friends, if Jesus is not the most important person in your life, you will always struggle with this. If this relationship is not the ultimate priority of your life, you will always be controlled by fear and doubt. You will always struggle with feelings of insecurity, doubt, and guilt, and shame, and disapproval. When your identity, friends, is grounded in what God thinks of you and how God feels about you, then you will be freed from all the constraints of human brokenness. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? So th- We've got, to, we've got to read the end of the chapter. I know we, I've skipped a lot of verses, but we can't skip uh, these last verses in, in Romans chapter 8. So I want us to all read uh, together verse 35 and following. We'll put it on the screen. Here we go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Stop, 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 stop. You can't just read this. Okay, what what is the first word? No. No is a demonstrative word. No is a no of resistance. You got to say no like you're saying it to your kids. Okay, you got to say no like you mean it. You know, you got to stand up to your accuser. You got to stand up to the opposition in your life. You got to stand up to whatever is going at you or going against you, whatever is stealing your joy. Uh, You've got to say no. When you feel like a sheep led to the slaughter, when you feel like darkness is your only friend, you got to say no, right? You got to say no like you mean it. This is the truth about God. This is the truth about you. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Amen? So, say, so read this like you mean it. Let's start. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that deserves some kind of response to what God thinks about you. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know if you believe in Jesus, struggling to believe, but you need to know this morning that there is a God in heaven who created you, who died for you, who desires a relationship with you, and in so doing, has a life of abundance and hope and purpose waiting for you. And so in this time of Thanksgiving and the holidays, as we reflect, there's no, there's no better time in, this, in our culture for people to be thinking about God. And I want you to be thinking about God. We're moving into a time of communion uh, this morning. I was raised in church where we took communion every week. Uh, but I, th- I don't know if this, they taught me this or if this is just the impression that I got. But uh, I had this feeling that co- communion was just this time to say to God, I'm sorry I messed up. I'll try to do better th- this week. Friends, that is not the gospel and that is not a communion. Communion is a time to celebrate what God has. There's got to be a time in your life where you set down the, the pen or you, you stop thinking about, oh God, this is what I got to do for you. 
And you got to start thinking, oh God, this is what you did for me. It'll change your life. And so I want communion this morning to be that for you. I want you to think not about how you messed up this week, because you're going to do it again this week. But what you have is a God who loves you in spite of your imperfections and your failures. And so would this time of communion remind you of what God did for you and how much he loves you and the joy and the celebration that can come when you remind yourself of that? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you love us. We are so unworthy and yet you have accepted us and we want to live in that acceptance. We don't want to live in the condemnation. We don't want to live obligated to trying to get it right. We don't want to live worried or anxious about what you think of us or how you feel about us. Father, we don't want to be separated from your love. And so may this time uh, before the Lord's table, uh, would you remind us of what you've done for us? And may that realization so transform our hearts that we walk out of this room grateful and humbled and filled with joy because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.